0: please be aware that this is a recording of a writing festival. As such, there are some adult concepts, probably a bit of swearing, and sometimes there might even be some triggering elements. So do be aware of that. If anything does make you feel uncomfortable, please stop listening at any point. Also, we do recommend you pop on some headphones. That way, the only person who can get offended is you. welcome back to the Rights for Festivals podcast where we're getting all lit up with the Wollongong Writers Festival. If you'd like to know more about Wollongong Writers Festival, go to www.wollongongwritersfestival.com or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook. This session is Navigating Inherited Christianity with Ruby Clare, Joel Hollier, Philip Wilcox and Beck Sandridge.
1: Thank you all so much for coming. Um, We're going to kick off because we have to finish right on time. Um, So we're going to try and get the most um, that we can out of the 55 minutes that um, we are here for. Thank you all so much for coming. It's great to see some familiar faces and some faces I've never seen before. Um, we have a really incredible panel uh, today, and I'm really excited to talk to them about um, childhood trauma and religion. The three things no one wants to talk about at parties, but the three things I inevitably talk about at parties when I drink too much. Um, to my left here, we have Joel. Um, Joel is a pastor, and he's the author of A Place at His Table. Um and then we've got Phil, who's a poet, um, and he's the former Australian Slam Poetry winner, and he's also won the New South Wales Slam Poetry competition a few times, I believe, correct? Yeah. And we've got Beck here, who's a singer-songwriter. She's a former Triple J unearthed winner. Um, she's just released a new album, and she got her ears pierced today, so I feel like yeah. that's probably pretty exciting. <laughs>
2: it's, a, it's a lie. They closed up, and I redid them. <laughs>
1: Um, Yes. And before we kick off for questions uh, today, um, (laughs) I have two rules. And the first is that this is a LGBT LGBT plus affirming event. Um, So we will have question time at the end. um, And just wanted to flag that. And the second thing to flag is there'll be no preaching here by anyone on stage or anyone in the audience either. Um, Save that for tomorrow because tomorrow's church day. Um, so we're going to start, um, by, I just would like to hear more about the panel, um, their childhood, what kind of, um, family they were raised in, um, what their religious experience was like. Um, so kind of like if you grew up in the church or if you still attend church, kind of like a testimony without a call to action. So, um,
3: would you like to (laughs) kick us off? (laughs) Sure. That sounds exciting. Um, hi, I'm Joel. Um, yeah, so I was born into a a really beautiful Christian family. Uh, My parents are both Christians, and they brought me along to a church that I loved as a kid uh, and grew up into my teenage years and loved it. Um, And then there's this awkward moment when you hit adolescence, and for a few of us, we suddenly realize that, oh, heck, we're gay. (laughs) And that's kind of like it it puts a bomb under your existence. Um, And so all of a sudden, the church became really complicated, I loved it, but it also told me that I shouldn't be there. Or I loved it, but it told me that I was not actually in existence because there's no such thing as a gay Christian. Um, Or I loved it, but I was going to hell. Mm. Like, that's just awkward. Um, So I was sitting there as a a teenager realizing that I'm gay, discovering that I believed in God, I believed in Jesus, but after a whole lot of soul searching, I hated God. And I hated Jesus because he'd made me this way. And I was just really angry for a long time. A lot of resentment. Um, kind of rediscovered faith, but decided that I was going to be celibate and I was never going to have a relationship because that's what I thought I had to do in order to be a good Christian and in order to get into heaven. So committed myself to that, was really excited about it, went to Bible college, got my Masters of Divinity, started working in a church as a pastor, and all the theology just fell through. All of a sudden I realized that this was a terrible idea. Um, So resigned, um, handed in my resignation and said, here's my theology Uh, and the church that I was working at and loved, um, that I had invested so much into, um, asked me not to come back the next day. Uh, And I just lost everything. I lost my house, my community, uh, the people that I loved dearly. Um, Yeah, so uh, ended up still having that faith. And that's where I stand now, still have a faith and would call myself a Christian. But it's very different to the childhood faith that I'd grown up in. Um, And I should say, I'm doing a a PhD um, at the Sydney Uni School of Medicine and Health, looking through a lens of trauma at... LGBT people growing up through evangelical traditions and, and what that effect actually is. So that's, that's kind of the realm that I found myself landing in and, and doing that research there as well because that's very much my story. So trauma hits the nail on the head there. Um,
1: Thank you. And uh, your Masters of Divinity, you really, I really feel that divinity just <laughs> radiating. <laughs> it's from just like oozing left. out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, have, you had, have you discovered anything in your research so far?
3: Uh, Yes, some really interesting things. And and maybe I'll kind of talk to this as we go through. Um, It's all qualitatively based. So it's all hearing people's stories. So all of my participants are LGBT people who've spent two or more years in the evangelical church. Uh, And I'm just gathering stories and and listening to what narratives have actually taken place. Uh, Extremely different But a whole lot of themes are coming through, especially around power and just the lack of power that a lot of LGBT people have or feel like they have in the church when they want to be heard. But theologically, there's big barriers to trained clergy actually listening to them in the first place.
4: So there's a big disconnect there.
1: Great stuff. Looking forward to hearing more. And Phil, tell us about your life.
4: Yeah, so um, I grew up for the first part of my life in sydney uh, my dad was a minister well he was training to be a minister at bible college and then i we moved to the outer realms of the sydney anglican diocese which was nowra which is pretty much as far south as you can go in the sydney anglican diocese and he was a minister there and he was also a scientist before he was a minister um and i grew up right next to the church you know in the, the rectory house like everyone knew where i lived and everyone knew my business and I, yeah, like Joel, I loved the church. and was very much in it in an embarrassing way. Like I think when I was in high school, I founded the Lunchtime Christian Group and I was, I was very, like I would make morning announcements at assembly for it and like wore it as a badge of honour how uncool I was about it. And I, um kind of realised a couple of years after school, a few years after school, my dad died. And when my dad died, I realised that a whole bunch of my faith was bound up in the identity of my dad, namely the ability of my dad to reason and logic. Uh, he was a scientist beforehand, uh, before he was a minister, and his faith was in a lot of ways very Sydney Anglican, um things were what they were and they were not what they were not and there was a way of looking at it and a way of looking about god and faith and and it could be reasoned and i it just there was no reason to me when my dad died i went i went a bit crazy i left home i was sort of homeless for like 6 months traveling around and then um I had to sort of rebuild a faith and I did rebuild a faith that made more sense to me, not in a sort of a scientific, logical Sydney Ankin way, but um, I sort of discovered it through, weirdly I discovered it through, (laughs) This sounds so lame at a writer's festival, through poetry. Um, (laughs) But it's true. Um, And I began to fall in love with some of the uh, unexplained metaphors for God that existed in the... Jewish scriptures and, and then I loved coming up with my own metaphors for God and images for God and I loved playing with truths and maybe testing out potential blasphemies and that's kind of where I am now. Um, yeah, I do poetry for a job now. I go into schools and I teach it or um, I perform poetry. Um, I'm based in London and I'm only here for a couple of weeks sister had a baby and I'm doing some work but I um I yeah I love teaching poetry I love I love teaching kids a different way of looking at things and getting them to express themselves in things that don't necessarily make sense with their images and metaphors and so yeah that's my story
2: sweet thanks Phil and Beck hello um my name is Beck and I grew up In I would say a Pentecostal Christian household, but my dad is agnostic. So my dad is renowned as Silent Ken, so he didn't really have much of a hand in how we were brought up. So I went to kids club and youth group and I was the guitarist in the worship band in church, but they took away my microphone. I don't think my singing voice was too the standard um, and yeah, I, I was yeah, there probably three days a week doing the whole churchy thingy um, and then once I left school, I just wasn't interested um, and it wasn't a matter of me not believing. Um, I just think I left school and did the classic backpackers trip around Europe um, and at that point, um, I started doing music full-time and just met a lot of people um, and I feel like with that I just became increasingly curious about myself and learning about other people's beliefs whereas I felt like my upbringing was very much this is quite insular. Um, uh, and then at 21 I came out to my family slash I think someone told my mum that I was holding a woman's hand um, and then... <laughs> Uh, she didn't take that very well and she was like, if you don't like the rules in this household, you need to leave, um, which for me was pretty traumatic, uh, and we didn't speak properly for about a year, um, and then after a year, she saw me have a little breakup and rada, and then we decided to try and repair our relationship, um, and we saw a therapist from her church together, um, which was really surprisingly beautiful. Uh, She asked for us to both have a compromise for each other, Um, and from that moment we have been mending our mother-daughter relationship and so of my family, and that was a good six or seven years ago. Um, And now... I think I believe in a God. I don't think I believe in organized religion or I think it should be something that is constantly reassessed and evolving. And, yeah, that's that's me.
1: Ish. Thanks, Bec. Um, there's so much to unpick in this and I'm really excited. Um, it's really interesting to talk about faith because um, uh, if you've grown up in the church, you're so used to either seeing people as being on the field or off the field. And if you're on the field, you're going to heaven. And if you're off the field, you're going to hell and you cannot sit on the fence. Um, and I think in my own journey as well, I'm Ruby by the way, um, I have definitely found the beauty in sitting on the fence when you're unsure and you're kind of trying to unpick a lot of those learnings, um, especially when you have brought up, been brought up in a family who have upheld uh, faith pretty seriously. Um, and to talk to the parent side of things, um, Beck, especially for um, your story, I imagine the pressure of, especially if uh, you... If you had a really healthy relationship with your parents beforehand, um, and then something like faith or a difference of faith kind of can throw a bit of a spanner in the works, um, how did you kind of go about navigating a relationship with your parents that didn't have faith underpinning it? I imagine that would have been pretty difficult.
2: Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I think it's still a work in, in progress. Like, I think, you know, it, it affected my ability to trust myself, to trust my family, to trust romantic partners, friendships. Um, But funnily, my mum and dad brought me up to believe that empathy is the most important quality. And so then when my mum was like, well, I love you, but this this is a no, it was very conflicting um but we've kind of brought it back to that place of you know curiosity and empathy but also creating a space where we're both able to have very different opinions um but just having that safe space where we're able to hear each other and say okay I hear you I don't necessarily agree but we're also two individuals um which yeah is something we still struggle with but I think that's just it's human. <laughs> yeah,
1: for sure. And Phil, I mean, I imagine for you as well, um, the pressure, especially after your father passed and reconciling the expectation maybe that others had on you to was there much did you feel that there was much expectation, or did you struggle with the guilt of managing that kind of pressure from a wider community, or was it pretty seamless for you?
4: No, actually the opposite. It was it was kind of the excuse that I needed to explore some things I didn't know that I needed to explore. So my dad passing was an opportunity for me to go, oh, okay, maybe nothing matters. I'm going to just go wild. And if, I don't know, maybe I, things would be very different if he didn't. Um, and luckily I didn't feel the responsibility. I, was a, I think I was a real dick. Like I had a girlfriend at the time, and I would just I just disappeared, and I had two younger sisters, and I had a mum, and I I'm not I'm not trying like I think I was very irresponsible with how I dealt with it, but I dealt with it very intensely, and I felt this is my time to grieve and discover things, but it was selfish. Yeah, it was, and previously. I had tried to live a very unselfish life for other people and others' expectations and grief allowed me to be selfish in a way that benefited me but there was a cost to, the, to others.
1: And where have you landed now as a result in terms of that, like you're <laughs> rebuilding or are you still experiencing kind of the joy of rebelling?
4: Oh, Well, you said something earlier like um, sometimes it's good to sit on the fence. The devil owns the fence. So no, I'm joking. That was a joke. I was like, "Oh my god." That's a line I've heard lots of times. Um, (laughs) I just felt that tension for half a second. Um, Yeah, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I um, I think my my faith is like just trusting that whatever wrongness I have or however messed up maybe i am or whatever my struggles are that like if there is a god god will probably be bigger than that and if god isn't bigger than that then god isn't really god and so for me it's just been like i've just if i've if i've had a faith it it's it's a faith of um things that are conflicting but they're addition, not subtraction, and they're things added, uh, they're not things fenced in out of fear. So it's like, yes, more of that, more of that, more of that, more of that, and then, oh, no, maybe these things don't go together, but maybe actually I can sit loosely with them. So, uh, yeah, I think, I don't know if I, I went off on a tangent there, but I think, yeah, something like that.
1: Yeah, cool. Thank you. And Joel? Let's talk about your folks. Mm. <laughs> How is you know, I mean, especially you were on the you were on the path to preaching, you would have, you know, fought the good fight, you would have been a pillar for celibate LGBT folk everywhere. Yeah. And then would have I imagine this pressure would have mounted, especially within the church, like, you know, Joel's amazing. Here's yeah. what we like, you know, I imagine your parents would have been really proud of you and how was that navigating all of that?
3: Yeah. So when I first told my mum that I was gay about 22, 21, uh, it was in that context of here's my sexual orientation, but here's my commitment to a conservative theology. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but that uh, ruined my mum's faith for quite a while um, because she said she could not approach God after discovering that her son would never have a relationship. She said from the moment that I was born, she had prayed for me that I would have a family of my own, that I would have a, a tribe to call my little people, my my wife and my kids. And that was such a high value for her. Uh, and so when she found that out, that broke her. Um, but she she didn't tell me that for quite a number of years. Um, but, yeah, they were, they were really proud of me because they saw me holding true to uh, what I believed. And they were really excited for that. My parents have a very high value on education and a very high value on integrity and authenticity. They are two very big things for them. Um, and they always hoped that through that, I would find a faith of my own. Um, so fast forward a few years, and I call mom and dad the night before I resign. And I say, hey, I'm, I'm about to hand in this paper explaining my theology And my mum says, I've been waiting for you to do this. I was like, oh, you never thought to tell me? Like, (laughs) great. Um, My dad took a little bit longer. um, So uh, I ended up writing a whole bunch of essays for them, which became a book later on. Um, But I wrote them so that my parents could see some of that journey. Um, And it was a really deliberate decision on my part to actually take them along on some of the the questions that I'd been asking for years, but it had to do so in silence, Uh, a couple of those questions and bring them along on that journey. Um, And so quite quickly, they actually changed their minds Um, and... They are now some of my or our, my husband and my strongest supporters. Um, sometimes I have to veto emails from my parents to say maybe don't send that one. Like they're they're passionate advocates and allies for us, which is amazing. Um, I know that that's not the case for everyone. So my husband's parents are still a lot earlier on in that journey, and I am kind of involved in that, but I also watch from a distance the the pain involved in that when they say. know a couple of years ago again there's no such thing as a gay christian in fact there's no such thing as a gay person Uh, you've just been confused um and to think well what is it is it education that's needed or is it a whole mindset shift that's needed there's so much in that um yeah.
1: That your book really articulately describes. And I, thi- I think um, analogy I really like using when talking about this kind of stuff, particularly with parents or with wider community. I mean, the community gives the community of church is so rich and fulfilling and beautiful. And to lose that can be so traumatising sometimes because you think, I'm still the same person. I just don't really necessarily believe that uh, there's heaven and hell or that uh, Jesus means this or Jesus means that. Um and I remember talking to my parents and particularly to some friends who, when I told them that I'd li- I was leaving the church or had changed my faith, a particular friend just sat there and started crying. And she said, you're going to hell. Like, I don't want you to live in hell forever. Um, and for her, she saw the world as a world in flames and she wanted, there was like a sense of urgency. She, you know, saw everyone and thought, I need you in heaven with me because like the devil is here and, and everything is on fire And um, I turned to her and said, well, I kind of feel like I'm swimming in the ocean. Like, I don't really see any flames anywhere. And it's really hard to communicate when you see fire and all I see is water. Um, And so I think that was really difficult in terms of a wider community thing for church when I left because they still saw fire and I was quite happy floating out in the ocean. Um, In terms of that community side of things, did you feel like a real loss? Did you lose a pretty significant community? Or for Beck, did you see your parents or your family involved in a community that you kind of wanted to tap into sometimes but didn't necessarily want the foundations of?
2: Yeah, I feel like initially my uh, defense mechanism was to attempt to compartmentalize my life. So I felt like I could uh, still hang out with all of my church friends who I grew up with and visit my family, uh, but then the whole gay or queer thing just wasn't spoken about, so it was very much like my life where was in little boxes, uh, which I learnt would then eventually tip out in other ways and unhealthy ways. Um, uh, so that was tricky and stressful, um, but then now I feel like the last probably only year I'm just like, actually, let's just let it all hang out. Yeah. <laughs> and if someone doesn't like it, that's okay. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, community is so complicated. Um, and perhaps it's also the nature of any gathering. There are going to be boundary markers that sort of signify who is in and who is out. And some, some communities do that better than others. The church historically and typically does that terribly. Um, and d- it draws it with these big red lines and if you step over that then mm. um and i think part of it is to do with the language that we use from a very early age we're indoctrinated I don't, I don't know if this is your experience but we're indoctrinated to think that faith as a christian is kind of you know platform zero and anything off that is a regression so you have um deconverting or uh you know deconstructing or walking away or falling away they they're all they're all in the negative um, even our language is you, you've gone backwards in some sense. Uh, and so to sit in that space and say, actually, no, I'm having thoughts that might fall outside these red boundaries, that too, to me, as a person growing up in the church, really felt like dangerous territory because it felt like I was actually not moving forward. And in faith, if you're not moving forward, you're dying. Um, and so it was this, this scary prospect um, to realize that I was actually failing because I was asking these questions. Um, There's been some interesting research done uh, in the States and in Germany. Um, Actually, not much. It's frustrating. me. Not much research has been done in deconversion or deconstruction. It's just not a world that sociologists or behavioural scientists have looked at, but they're starting to. And one study uh, looking at America and Germany found that when people in America... Uh, take on a non-Christian identity, and I use that deliberately, so not lose their faith, but take on a non-Christian identity, they thrive. Their, their self-autonomy goes up. Their sense of self goes up. Their sense of being in control of their future goes up. In Germany, if that exact same thing happens, the majority go the opposite direction. Uh, they feel less control of their life. They feel like they aren't able to make decisions that are impactful in their own world or in their community. Um I don't know why that happens. say it? that statistic and not yeah. <laughs> <why>. <laughs> That's it. Your guess is as good as mine. Um, but I tend to think we're somewhere between America and Germany um, okay. on that. Um, and so for some people I meet, they've taken on a non-Christian identity and they, they've really thrived in that. For so many people that I meet, uh, particularly through, uh, you know, my research participants who are LGBT, they've taken on a non-Christian identity not out of choice uh, They've been pulled, kicking and screaming out of the church and then been bashed. Uh, And so for them, their non-Christian identity is not a freedom. Uh, It's not a liberating experience. It's a tragedy. Um, And some people will never move past that. Uh, For some people, they will always yearn for that faith that they once had or that community that they once had. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you called it grief. Uh, like we need to look at this through a lens of grief not just liberation because so many people and seeing the nods in the room we agree it, so many, so many people it is this deep sense of i lost something that i held dearly and i don't know how to get it back because i'm now on the outside and there's no way back in and that's a tragedy
4: yeah i um i love that analysis that was great um i uh i found like Uniquely, you were talking about um, America and Germany. One of the things that I think is unique about uh, especially Sydney faith, and I I can't speak to the Pentecostal church, but maybe like the Sydney Anglican Diocese is the Sydney Anglican Diocese uh, of the Anglican Church can only exist in Sydney. It's a very Sydney faith. Um, I live in London now and, and, you know, I go to a, a Church of England church. It's, it's very different. Um, and it, uh, just coming back, I've realized, oh, of course, this is how someone from Sydney does church because it's very Sydney. It's, uh, uh, like almost like, just like everyone in Sydney talks about like the housing market and property prices and moving forward and growth and like, well, the way forward, of course we do the West Connects because it's the most practical thing. Let's get this forward. So faith then looks like, well, are you in or are you out? Do you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord? Great, tick, then you're saved. Okay, so there's two ways to live and we can put it on a chalkboard and we can like demarcate it like it's Sydney. It's a very Sydney faith. And so when you step away from that, like it feels like you're not only going against like your faith you're going against like this whole framework of where you grew up and the city that you're in and all the value structures around it and it's like it can be this oh oh shit like i uh, i've probably made a big mistake here like i'm going against everything and it's terrifying to go against progress or um just take a step back and uh yeah i think that's the only thing I would add. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And I think, um, a lot of the, um, I run a small Facebook group for people who've left Christianity or are kind of deconstructing their faith and wanting to rebuild in a way that kind of makes sense to them. And I think for a lot of them, it's leaving and getting out of that, those red, red boundaries and going, Oh, but I kind of still want the community. And I still want to talk about faith because maybe I don't necessarily believe the Sydney Anglican thing anymore, but I kind of, I kind of, there's truth in that still or there's still beauty in that or there's still hope in that. And I I know for me, I left and thought, well, if it's not that, there's nothing because, like, God, Jesus, that whole structure in the Anglican Church is the only true way, and if it's not that way, it's nothing. And I think it's been, like, leaving for myself and for maybe speaking on behalf of um, some of the others in the community, the realisation that you can actually find that joy and that community and that beauty in other faith-directed places that may not necessarily have... a a particular doctrine or may still uphold the Christian doctrine but just in a very different way like how's church done differently in London you were saying that it's quite different
4: yeah I mean I can't speak to all of church in all of London (laughs) um, but I'll try um (laughs) so uh I don't know I I've just experienced a whole bunch of less flock management I just came up with a flock management like I don't know like (laughs) go here don't do this okay are you respecting the power and authority of the person up in charge great 10% cool sweet sweet sexual morality tick like there's less of that and more like that'll take care of itself let's get to the basics Mm -hmm. um that's just my I mean probably heaps of churches different but yeah I don't know
1: yeah cool um and I think it's also important for us to steer into the creative aspect of this because it is a writers festival um As much as I would love to have these kinds of conversation in churches, I think that would be really cool. Um, But we probably should talk about um, the creative component because we have three people on stage who use very different um, forms to express themselves, maybe not necessarily their faith or lack of, um, but they use different media. And um, I guess speaking to that, how do you personally use your form to express yourself and how, um, yeah, just kind of talk Talk me through the creative process for you, and whether that has actually been healing in either reconstructing what you believe or in just
4: expressing what you believe. Mm. (laughs) Under the bus. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, I think initially when I, I started out writing more folky music, I tipped into like the mythological religious language, and I thought that I was poetic. Um, more recently, I feel like I've decided that, uh, I wanted to find a voice that was more authentic to how I speak in everyday life, uh, something that's a bit more on the nose or a bit more tongue in cheek. Um, so, um, with that, I wrote a song called You're a Fucking Joke. So I feel like that was my revolt, uh, which my mom and my grandma didn't like. Um, and then progressing from that i wrote a song called i'll never want a boyfriend so i feel like um the church has influenced my writing in some ways um yeah i was just i mean yeah i feel like i just f- once my way to pro- process all of that tr- trauma and all of that stuff with my family is to uh do it in a very uh tongue is firmly planted in my cheek kind of way. Um, And I think that's important for a time. uh, But I struggle with the fact that a song is a very cement thing and it's often people are like, this is still how you feel, but actually like, um, you know, I think it's important to unfreeze trauma and be like, actually, no, I no longer feel like that. Um, So, I mean, I still will never want a boyfriend um, and I still think that person's a bit of a joke. But um, I think, uh, yeah, Earth. great
1: answer i'm in full support um and i guess similar for you you know having poetry that are you know yeah. certain points of your journey
4: um yeah the church hasn't influenced poetry for me in fact i'm gonna I'll be honest like the church has has been it's hard it's hard to do poetry in the church when you have people say to you How do you justify what you do biblically? And um, the church hasn't been because, I mean, and every church is different. The church that I grew up was so concerned in being right. Well, no, not being wrong. And if you're writing poetry, you have to risk being wrong, even if it's a metaphor or an image that is um, accidentally heretical. You have to risk it. And, And so the church hasn't helped me with poetry however I don't it hasn't helped me in the opposite way of oh great I'm going to write um anti-church poems I don't do that but one thing I found really interesting is I've just uh talked to a whole lot of people who are in the um the poetry scene and almost without exception I think maybe there's like one person I've talked to who is in the poetry scene who doesn't have some conception or faith in a God or the universe or some sort of entity, which I find very interesting. Um, And I don't know why that is. Um, But for me, I need to believe in something other than myself in order to reach to say something capital T true, that seems dangerously true or true in a way that I could say that poem in front of a room full of people, completely different Backgrounds and perspectives, and there's it sizzles with something that feels right or true, and I don't know why. I can't explain why. And to me, when I hear poetry that's like that, that's the best kind of poetry to me. And that's very different to the church that I grew up in because that's you 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 can't justify that. You can't back that up biblically. Um, it just it just is what it is. And um, so yeah, so my my church hasn't influenced at all, my poetry, but I think my faith has and my belief in, a, in an other, in, in a God who I can maybe get a glimpse at some things that shimmer and sparkle that seem right to me. So that's what I'm trying to do with poetry, I think, yeah.
1: yeah, That's great. And we were talking earlier about you potentially having a poem that speaks to that. Did you, you, did you want to share it with everyone? I don't know how to seamlessly introduce someone reading a poem But um, this is my seamless introduction
4: to you. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, Did it work? um, All right. I don't have this poem memorized. Okay. (laughs) My father was a lapsed biochemist, a practicing Anglican cleric, and probably the most qualified person I knew to ask the big questions. Like... If you put a chameleon in a room full of mirrors, what color would it be? And if Wiley Coyote had all that money to buy all that Acme equipment, why didn't he just buy dinner? And who exactly is God? Dad folded his brows like a scrunchie and said, Wild dog, potter, shepherd, shepherd, father, woman in labor. The more we're distracted, scrambling for the right name tag, the less likely God's going to be discovered, peeing against the back of the shed, laughing at all of our imperfect metaphors. Every new image, another layer of crepe paper, contributing to a collage, slowly soiling perfect canvas, an ever-expanding live installation, forcing us to stand further and further outside the art room to make out any form. All right, son. Let me obfuscate God. First up, don't trust the stars. Look to the black spaces that tessellate the true constellations. Inhale the vapor of apricots hovering above Turkish rooftops. Listen to the pop of speakers reminding dancers what Prince should sound like. You probably won't see him on a cloud with a crown in a dove's beak. He's rarely in the reflection of a talk show host's teeth. Instead, you might find him collecting forgotten glottal stops and unaspirated teas, hoarding collections of -of end-of-year soccer trophies, whirling around chubby fingertips of ballet teachers, living inside a concert piano, navigating the electromagnetic storms of an adagio, and he drowns at the start of every semester in the gurgling stone spring eye of an aspiring nihilist who wished he believed in these damn cigarettes more Resurrecting in middle names, in second sons, in chips on shoulders that slowly fossilize, only to be uncovered by geologists who with bloody palms smash sedimentary rock wielding sledgehammers. And he's in the arc of that swing because he lives in the momentary lapse of gravity, in the apex of a trampoline jump, in the hang time of wily e. Coyote who incidentally didn't buy dinner because he spent his money wisely on the pursuing, not the possessing, grinning with the knowledge that you can see God dance in 24 frames per second as you flick through layers of skin. And already that's too much detail. Be wary of your God self-replicating at the speed of an eighth-grade art project slapped together the night before. A paper-mache mask metastasizing into carcinoma that looks a lot like my face since you won't be able to see it very soon know that God's in the blood so he's in the mosquito he's in the koi carp that ate the insect's children and he sits next to old men in Japanese gardens know that he loves your mother more than I ever could that she'll slip into a new skin eventually a bit like a chameleon who by the way in a room full of mirrors would be (laughs) self-conscious nothing I guess that's okay Find God in that silence, in the words I don't say. How
1: do you back that up?
3: <laughs> you don't? You're a PhD um, student now. Yeah, wow. Let's talk about <laughs> academic Yeah, the boring ones. Stuff. Yeah, that's it. Thank um, you so much for sharing. That was yeah, really beautiful. Thank that you. was incredible. Thank you. Um so much of my challenge that I face is that theological propositions are inherently boring. Um, and so the challenge is to make them beautiful. Um, the challenge is to do what you've just done, to take ideas from also and put words to them that are beautiful to listen to, or beautiful to look at, or beautiful to ponder on. Um, I struggle with that. I, I like that. I I think, I think of myself as a creative but I have to work really hard at it. Um, so uh, the book that I, I wrote, um, it is essentially a, a theology textbook. Like I think that's at its core what it is, um, but I've tried to drive it forward using stories. And for me that I think has been really powerful, and I took that straight from the church where I grew up so often hearing, if you're going to share your faith with someone, don't just share two ways to live. Share them your story because you can't argue against a story. Um so I just use that on them. Um, You know, you you can't disprove my story. I've been really hurt by the church. Um, I've been really disillusioned by the institution. I've been really injured by dear pastor, your actions and nothing you can say or do can disprove that. Uh, And so taking stories has been really powerful for me and not just to hear those stories, but to use those stories to shape Change. So my PhD is essentially twenty stories woven together uh, to capture the words that these people are expressing, so that they can actually have their voice heard. Um, and I think there's great power and great beauty just in that, um, just in the fact that these people have narratives in their lives. Um, yeah. So, so that's been really powerful for me. I think um, as I was just listening um, to what we've been reflecting on. Um, I remember sitting in church history lectures and hearing about how people through the centuries have just created the most remarkable pieces of art and literature driven by this deep faith. Um, and it, it almost seems, it, it seems like we're in a bit of an anomaly in this time and in this location that uh, we, we've almost swung the pendulum in the other way and the church is really not into beautiful things. It's almost like that beauty in itself is a bit of a heresy, um, or is that an odd, odd idea? Um, the church has historically come up with some incredibly beautiful things. Born at the wrong time, I don't know. Um, what do you uh,
1: think that is? What do you think shifted?
3: Yeah, I, I think there was a, a movement into um, away from looking at the world because the world became bad, the spiritual became good. Um, And I think things that are beautiful are inherently of the world. And when we use the word of the world, if you've been in churches for a while, you know of the flesh of the world and the devil is something, avoid. Um, And so beauty became something attached to what we see around us, not of God. I I think that was the theological shift that kind of happened about 100 years ago.
1: Did you guys want to add to that or...?
2: I think, I think it's definitely moved from the romantic movement thing. But then I thought it was interesting when you were saying that you feel like your craft comes from a higher place, which is still quite from the romantic movement. Um, I think there's definitely a shift and I can see it very much in like music in Australia in particular where we're craving something more literal um, and less floral. Um, and, yeah, I think it's just you want something easy to digest and I think um uh, yeah I'm, I'm just going to close with these two paragraphs
1: um and yep this is from Joel's book a place at his table um and as we extend this grace let me call upon you to share your stories share them widely and share them courageously people are moved to change when they see the harm that their theology is having that is how I was slowly moved to re-examine what I had for so long believed and taught For some of you, you are reading these words and you feel isolated, alone in this task. If it is any encouragement, let me share with you the truth that you are not alone. There is an army of us fighting, always seeking to make this world a warmer place for LGBT people. But it cannot stop there. As people who know pain, we are in a unique position to speak up for those who are yet to be granted a voice. We live in a world and church stained with the hues of racism, marked with the evils of misogyny and replete with disdain for any who do not conform to the norm. Justice for just us is no justice at all. The call to action is far bigger than our own tribe. As the church, can LGBT people lead the charge in calling forth inclusion and embrace for those who are yet to be fully welcomed and affirmed? We have such a powerful place, and we must, my friends, be ready to speak up for and listen to the margins. And um, with that, thank you all for coming and please thank our amazing panellists.
0: If you'd like to hear more from the Wollongong Writers Festival, because trust me, there's some really amazing sessions yet to drop, or you just want to hear more from regional writing festivals, then head on over to our website, www.writesforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals that's where you'll find all the episodes of the rights for festivals podcast or you can go and subscribe wherever you get your pods spotify stitcher apple podcasts all those good places please do give us a rating and review because then we can spread the goodness and other people can find us too thank you so much for listening to the rights for festivals podcast and supporting regional writing festivals This podcast episode was produced and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting. Podcasts for a positive world.